2: Come in and know that you are welcome. To what? Well, to the nook. To the near end of summer. And if that is not invitation sufficient, then to the dark. And, of course, to the expectation that here tonight you will hear a tale to terrify. Yes. My name is Lawrence Santoro, and this is Tales to Terrify. Oh, good grief. Come in. Settle. Find a chum to snuggle with. And tonight... Please get a grip on your persona, because tonight we visit a world, a time, a place, where the self may be peeled away simply by peeling off a mask. But first, the usual. Stop by our homepage, com, and consider making a contribution that will help keep us and all the neighborhoods of the District of Wonders fluid, funded, and operationally sound. You know, if our little corner of web world is similar to some of the free services of which I partake, the ones that depend on the kindness of, well, not of strangers, but upon the kindness of its frequent users, then... Tales to Terrify, The Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, all limp along with about one user out of every three hundred or so, contributing toward its upkeep. So, come, don't make us, don't make us sell our hair to a wig shop. Drop a few dollars, pounds, coins of whatever realm in which you dwell our way. Make a generous one-time donation or a modest continuing subscription to keep us in beverages, in treats, air conditioning, and bandwidth. And if the mood strikes you, friend us on Facebook. Stop by and engage with others. We're trying to make the page an ancillary organ to the shows here in the Nook. Every week we feature pictures, sounds, videos— whatever we can skim from the heady substrates and the freebies offered by the internets. And we welcome your input. By we, of course, I mean Cher Eves, Laura Nealus, our editorial intern, Tony C. Smith, Ms. Tecelia, Mahler, the Ink Black Cat of the Nook, and, of course, myself. Okay, that will be that. Now, before we dive into the fiction of the night... Let us turn our attentions to last week's author savant, Mr. Mike Allen, as he takes us on another stroll down the slippery corridors of his mind on this month's tour of the abattoir.
3: Michael Greetings, tales to terrify listeners. And welcome to the newest installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I've been gone for a couple months, and I apologize for that, but I am back now with a possessive vengeance, as is my buddy and frequent guest and co-host, Shallon Hurlbart. Say hi, Shallon. Hello. (laughs) Today we're going to talk about Dibbix, But before we get into that, I want to offer a little explanation for why I wasn't around last month. I managed to time a whole bunch of projects that I am working on so that they culminated at the same time, which happened to be June, July. One of those was the relaunch of Mythic Delirium, my longtime poetry journal I started a Kickstarter to help me revamp it as a journal that publishes both poetry and fiction. As of this recording, we have successfully reached our funding goal, so if any of you have helped us with that, thank you very much. Also, I launched Clockwork Phoenix 4, my newest anthology, funded by the Kickstarter I did at this time last year, and... I launched my first novel, the Fire Concerto. I am just back from ReaderCon, where we held the launch readings and launch parties for both events. And they went very well, and I'm very happy and very tired and very grateful that Shallon is willing to help me out and get this done so that Larry doesn't cut the fingers off my right hand. I miss the ones on my left. Larry, can you please give them back? But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) enough of that. (laughs) Um, Shallon and I have just watched The Unborn, a movie involving divic Possession that came out in 2009. And both of us have seen last year's The Possession, which was also about a divic. The plots to both are very, very similar. There's just a couple of variable touches to it right both involve women well actually possession involves a young girl who is threatened by the dybbuk the unborn involves a college age girl who is threatened by the dybbuk not the same dybbuk mind you but a dybbuk which both movies portray as Demons, essentially, which does not match with the folklore for what a dibbock is. Right. As Alan and I understand it. Neither of us are experts. So if you are an expert and you hear us screw it up, <laughs> feel, feel free to contact us and let us know where we got it wrong. But as far as we know, dibbocks are ghosts. Right. Really, really. From what I've looked
1: up, what I found is that they are the passed on spirits of dead people who then possess the living. Right. But beyond that, any, like, why they do it, or if there's some greater purpose for them to do such a thing, I couldn't find any. I was interested by the image that accompanies the entry on Wikipedia that shows a person with a skeletal figure riding their back. So it seems more of a, a burden kind of a haunting, rather than a truly malevolent... Possession, like, would be portrayed in The Exorcist or The Haunting of Emily Rose or that sort of thing.
3: The most that I have absorbed about Dibbix comes from reading and publishing the fiction and poetry of my friend Sonia Tape, who often writes about Dibbix, and she tends to portray them as more melancholy figures than actively malicious figures. Though something that she does do uses the classic Dybbuk trope of a person speaking with the voice of the deceased, which is something that we don't actually see in either of these movies that I can recall. Right.
1: The closest thing that happens is a little boy named Maddie in the Unborn speaks for the ghost with the wonderful name Jumbie. There's no voice Per se, for the ghost at all in that movie. No, there isn't. There's some howling and screaming. No, no speech, really. Right.
3: The, the dipic does not seem particularly unique as a creature. Yet another child ghost that can stretch its mouth unnaturally wide. That's a favorite effect of a lot of horror movies yeah, these days. Do you notice that? I, I the... have,
1: and I don't like it. For me, it takes me right out of the suspension of disbelief because it's almost always done with really obvious cgi and the stretched right. mouth ends up looking cartoonish to me there is a, a, a yeah. practical effect in the unborn where the mother of the main character is sitting in a chair and when the girl walks around in front of her it throws its head back and its entire face is a mouth and that was pretty scary The first time I saw it, it it might have been more startling, but the creature effect itself is really good. It's definitely
3: gruesome and striking. Right. Although, you know, it still ties into the great big mouth thing. I was actually reflecting on that, how movies have come to sort of equate this stretching mouth. It's both the thing that's coming to eat you and the decayed face that's mouth opens too wide because, you know, the muscles no longer work. Right. I, I guess it's just meant to be very obvious metaphor for death
1: I guess. coming I don't for know. you. But... but I think the worst offender was I Am Legend with Will Smith.
3: I haven't actually seen that.
1: I own it, but I own a lot of movies, so that's not the biggest recommendation in the world. The vampires in it are all fully CGI, and they all, when they... Scream and yell, their mouths... The, stretch. Great, big, the great
3: big stretchy mouth. Right. Now, back to Dybbix. One thing that both of these movies have in common, the unborn, to my knowledge, not based on any sort of real-life no. story. The possession, loosely based on a real-life incident in which... A possessed box, rumored to be possessed box, the Divic box was sold on eBay. And in, it was
1: like a wine box, right? Yeah, in
3: the real box, you, it has a website devoted to it that you can easily find online. The Divic box in the possession doesn't look anything like the actual Divic box. It's definitely enhanced for the sake of horror. But one thing that these movies definitely do have in common, my original point, is they really focus on body horror in a way that I'm not sure your typical exorcist movie does. And to qualify what I mean by that, I mean, obviously all exorcists patterned movies have some degree of body horror element in that it's almost always a girl or a woman, and they're almost always put through all these bizarre physical contortions. Contortions and mortification of the flesh. Right. However, in both the possession and the unborn, you actually see the physical invasion in a way that I don't think is necessarily present in some of these other movies. For example, The Possession has the scene where they take the girl for the MRI. Right. And you actually see the face of the Divok inside her body. Right. And in The Unborn, you see the Divok at one point actually push its way into the belly of... Our heroine who is watching this through an out-of-body experience, which I actually thought was kind of a clever way to Yeah, yeah, to an interesting
1: that. way to do it. Another thing about the physical aspect in The Unborn is that as the Dybbuk passes from person to person, their face, and especially their eyes, take on the appearance of the child who has become the Dybbuk. So, when they're possessed, their eyes become this ghostly blue, and every once in a while, their facial features take on the shape and appearance of the the kid.
3: You know, I suppose we've got some poetic license going on there. At least you can tell who's possessed when that happens. Though they do use that to good effect in some way. For example, the way our heroine played by Odette Yustman, I believe. Is that right? Yes her eyes slowly change color as as the divix interest in her grows more intense i felt that that actually was an element that worked the old fashioned the divic takes you over and then suddenly your eyes are the color of the divix i mean that goes all the way back to the exorcist right <laughs> so that's not necessarily an original touch there no the very least a, f- a
1: quick and dirty way to show who's under the creature's control
3: you know something that interested me about the Unborn. And I believe that this is in contrast with the Possession. The Possession kind of took its time introducing the family. In the Unborn, we start seeing all of the Possession nightmares and the little freaky occurrences that hint that something is wrong Without even really knowing anything about the woman that it's happening to,
1: the opening scene is a nightmare that the main character has about finding a fetus in a jar in the woods, where
3: all fetuses can be found, obviously. <laughs>
1: right, and it, it serves to introduce a couple of the themes that are in the movie. There's a dog that wears a boy's mask that part in several is pretty scenes. Well done. Yeah. I, I want to know how they train that dog to sit still with that mask. Cause I, I mean, I own a dog, and you put anything on that dog's head, and she goes crazy. So. Well,
3: well, that's why they have the professional animal trainers. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything. I think the dog's appearance later in the movie is, is very yeah. disturbing. Oh, my God. <laughs> It takes a little while to get to know our heroine, played by Odette. I'm going to call her Odette. uh, Yes, ma'am, Because I can't remember the name of the character, which maybe is a point that I'm about to make. It seems that the movie relies so heavily on us being familiar with how this sort of story works that it never really tells us anything about Odette's character beyond... College girl who has past she wasn't aware of. (laughs) She does some good acting with what she's given to do, but I suspect she just had to kind of invent her character out of whole cloth because there's very little offered about even what her interests are as a person. Right.
1: I mean, she's a college student, and that's it. That's all we know. We don't know what she's studying. We don't know anything of that nature. She has a best friend. Whose name I actually remember, Romy. That's right. Romy's a more
3: unique character. She's yeah. a smart ass with a lot of superstition. Unfortunately, because she's black, <laughs> you, you can predict what will happen to her in the movie and be correct. Right. It's <laughs> sad I, to say, but it's true. Yep. Idris Elba is also in this movie, and he gets the same, same thing. fate. Same thing. And.
1: I tell you I'm starting to get sick of that trope. Yeah, it,
3: I I've been sick of it for a while. Was, you know, well, both, I, both I say starting
1: in in the colloquial I'm starting. It's getting pretty offensive. No, both
3: of those actors give it their all and what they do. You got you got to give them that. Um, oh, Idris Elba's is great in this movie. Oh yeah. I it's, mean he
1: his, his, he's he's not in it for very long. Screen time is probably less than 15 minutes, but his character is also very Interesting, you know, he's an Episcopalian priest who's willing to work alongside the rabbi to perform this exorcism, showing a a, a much different picture of a religious figure that you would see in these movies. Sure. You know, most of the time it's either very Catholic or very Jewish or, you know, it's one or the other. You can't interfere with the mysticism of this one religion. That's what it's all about.
3: Sure. What what you're saying is definitely true of the possession, which purports to be heavily invested in the Jewish ritual. Right. I, I I don't have enough background to know how correct it is. Right. I suspect there's a lot of fudging. Uh, I think if you had to compare Exorcist, the, in The Unborn you have the team of Idris Elba and Gary Oldman, which is cool, but the Exorcist in The Possession...
1: Is Malish Yahoo. Yes. Who <laughs> If you don't know, he's um, R&B and hip hop musician. But he he's a Hasidic Jew, which makes him unique in in the hip hop world. But he delivers such a good performance Yeah, he's easily, in, the, he's in that easily movie. the best thing about the possession. Uh, absolutely. I, think, yes. I mean he even outshines Jeffrey Dean Morgan who plays the dad. Right. And that guy is amazing. He did a good job, too. Whenever I think of Modest Yahoo, I think of this bearded rap star who's kind of frenetic, and he does this very straight character as this conflicted young rabbi who's willing to break some very strict rules. Right,
3: right. In order to help the family.
1: That's another thing that's really interesting about the Dybbuk stories and movies is there's not a lot of Judaic characterization in, in film unless it's like Holocaust related right. or World War II. Um, or a Woody Allen movie. Or a Woody Allen movie or, or <laughs> comedy. <you Yeah>. Know? <laughs> and so it, it's really interesting to me to see a Jewish horror movie. I don't know if I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but one of my interests and drives is multicultural literature and film with some of the Japanese films we've talked about and some of the Swedish films we've talked about it's really interesting to get another culture involved in the
3: horror genre. And, you know, I agree with that, but this also touches on what's kind of my frustration with both movies. What you end up getting is the exorcist template with the Hebrew scriptures right, You know, right. added it, it, on as flavor. Exactly. It's like yeah. a, a, a different coat of paint on the same
1: car. But it's a start. A lot of the movies that have been transferred from... Japan to America, like The Ring and whatnot, it's the same thing. It puts a American pastiche over what's essentially a very unique Japanese idea of hauntings. Right. And so this is sort of the same thing, and I'd like to find out more about The authenticity of some of the beliefs that are portrayed in these movies. Because I would hate to have the Jewish culture getting these this kind of treatment in Hollywood and finding out that it's just a bunch of offensive nonsense.
3: What I can tell you, but not with resounding authority because it's been a little while, I did do some research into the possession Mm -hmm. after I saw that in the theater many months ago, uh, as to various aspects of the lore discussed in that movie, and ultimately had to conclude that about 90% of it was just made up for the movie. Right. <laughs> and the same can be said
1: for a lot of the Catholic stuff. Sure. So the reason that I suggested that we do the Dybbuk was because of what I said before, it, it's neat to see a different culture's monsters being made into film. I would really love to see maybe a more sensitive treatment of the subject matter, a more culturally accurate depiction. Ultimately, if you're going to use something like a monster from a unique culture, whereas, like, you know, vampires, there's a version of vampire in every culture, so you just flavor it a little bit, and then you got your Japanese vampires or your your Mexican vampires or whatever. The divic is unique to
3: Judaism, and I'd really like to see that explored a little bit. Yeah, I think that neither movie really does that. I mean, certainly on the surface, they tied into the Jewish Yeah, yeah, it's culture. very much
1: as as if there's like, oh, here's these evil spirits, and then a nod to the audience, by the way, he's Jewish, and then they go back to
3: just, it's an evil spirit. Right. If you've seen any exorcism movie, you can basically guess how either of these movies are going to go, even down to the twist, which kind of amount to, it's not over. <laughs> right, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> the Unborn actually reminded me a lot of Sp- Lice at the end. I could see that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's not over and it's
3: in you. Whoa. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Although, the movie that came to my mind was Prometheus. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, is Odette going to be climbing into a machine to administer a self cesarean Right,
1: right. sequel. And, and, Uh, you know, Idris Elba sacrificing himself in both of those movies. uh, Yeah, that's true. You know? That's true. He (laughs) sure did. As for scare factors, uh, I found The Possession to be a scarier movie. Then again, when you put a child in peril, I always find
3: that a little scary. Of course, it's been a little while since I've seen The Possession, and I just saw The Unborn. I think some of the individual moments In the Unborn. Might be creepier than The Possession, although they're probably about on par. Can't remember anything in The Possession that's quite on the level of that thing with the dog. or Oh, yeah, or the... Or the old man in... Oh, in the wheelchair. Oh. Yeah. 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 Supposedly paralyzed... Old man. Right. And, and apparently he's paralyzed again when you see him yeah. later. Yeah, Both movies have lots of bugs. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I guess you have the moths in the possession, and, and you have crawlier creatures in the unborn. Right.
1: I don't know how many of you know what a Weta is, but it, it's a gigantic New Zealand cricket. The namesake of Weta Studio, the people who did the special effects in the Lord of the Rings movies. Yes. But it's a huge, creepy-looking cricket. Absolutely harmless, but, you know, when you got a cricket the size of your thumb crawling around, that's pretty creepy stuff.
3: For some reason, a whole lot of them appear in The Unborn. Right.
1: You know, that is one of the scarier sequences for me, and one of the more visually arresting, the bathroom at the club. Where right. it she goes in and vomits, and then toilets start overflowing with the crickets, and the walls break open, and... Expose It's like all kinds of like creepy crawly tentacles legs, and legs yeah. and stuff, and it's very that—that's a little Lovecraftian. Yeah, there, I was going to say. You
3: know, that's but, that, that's the other dimension kind of trying to push its way through. The, yeah, that
1: kind of thing. That, yeah, very that, much that the, like uh, the club scene in the extended version of Jacob's Ladder. There's a similar thing where the walls break open and there's creatures, otherworldly
3: creatures, behind the walls. My friend Laird Barrett also likes to do that kind of thing in his short stories. Oh, yeah. Women are always the, the targets of possession in these. Women are girls.
1: I have a feeling it comes down to our cultural view of women and children, and especially female children, as being fragile, needing rescue or needing protection. Which is a very outdated concept. This is true. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the world, especially the general movie viewing public, has caught up with the reality that men and women are equally vulnerable to horror and crime and pain. You know, it's a cheap trick if you want to put someone in peril that the audience will instantly feel for, you put a child or a woman. I, I want to see the, I want to see. I mean, the, it's not even just possession. Look at Halloween. I want to see an exorcism movie starring The Rock. <laughs> uh, end of Days, okay. starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. He actually gets possessed in that movie. Okay. That's the whole thing. It's like he's a cop trying to do good and the end of the world is coming and he's all involved and then he gets possessed by the devil. But is the point of the movie
3: to exorcise him or is that just something that happens? The point of the movie is he becomes
1: the tool by which the world ends. There is no attempt at saving him by anyone but himself. The world will not be back. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? And that's the only movie that comes readily to mind about a male being possessed as the point of the movie. I mean, in The Unborn, plenty of men get possessed, but, but it, only but for it, a short time. It's and always only
3: briefly, and it's for the purpose, purpose of getting, of getting at the, into the woman.
1: Yes. Yeah. I can't think of another movie that deals with male possession. The astronaut's wife, maybe, a little bit, but it's not a supernatural possession. Giant Depp comes back from space with an alien intelligence inside of him. But then, also, there's no attempt to get rid of it. It's just, like, the wife starts to notice weird stuff about him. And And it's really about threatening the wife. Yeah. All right, yes, there we go. Yeah, so... I don't know. If any of you out there know of a movie or movies that portray males in peril, especially males being possessed, I'd be really interested to know.
3: Yeah, please let us know. Leave your reactions in the comments below. Yes, yes. That's all we have for you for the moment. And until next time, stay scared. Good night, all. The
2: Great Big Stretchy Mouth Thing. hmm? Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Shailen. I have the possession. It's been part of the permanent collection here in the Nook for quite some time. Uh, We watched it just a few months ago. Not bad. I'll have to take a peek at the unborn. And, by the way, wetas. Ever since seeing Peter Jackson's King Kong and noting the wetas in that film the size of a "'kindergarten soccer player. "'I've been a little nervous about New Zealand "'being just a bit too close to Chicago. "'Well, thanks again, Mike. "'Thanks again, Shailen. "'You know, every time you guys come on, "'for that matter, every time I hear another segment "'of Kevin Lush's Horror 101, "'it ends up costing me money. "'New movies, new books. "'It never ends. "'Ah, well, I stay away from eBay anyway.' So no Dybbuk wine boxes for me. Next, fiction. Tonight's tale to terrify is from Ms. Yugi Foster. Yugi grew up in the Midwest, although she is now at home in what she calls a mildly haunted, fae-infested house in Atlanta, Georgia, shared with her husband Matthew. She received a Master of Arts degree in developmental psychology and immediately retired from such pursuits in order to write fiction. She says she also edits legislation for the Georgia General Assembly, which from time to time I suspect is another venture into flights of fancy. No offense to anybody in Georgia. I do something very similar here in the state of Illinois for the city of Chicago. And I know... Never mind... Yuji received the 2009 Nebula Award for Best Novelette, and that is for tonight's story, and the 2011 and 2012 Drabblecast People's Choice Award for Best Story. She was named the 2009 Author of the Year by Bards and Sages. The Dragon and the Stars, an anthology of Chinese culture-related stories edited by Derwin Mack and Eric Choi, contained her story, Mortal Clay, Stone Heart. The book won the 2011 Aurora Award for Best English-Related Work. She has also received the 2002 Phobos Award, been translated into eight languages, and has been a finalist for the Hugo, Washington Science Fiction Association, and British Science Fiction Association Awards. Her short story collection, Returning My Sister's Face and Other Far Eastern Tales of Whimsy and Malice, was published in 2009 and has been used as a textbook at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and at the University of California-Davis. It's a good introduction to Yuji's work as well. You will be able to visit with her at her website, com that's E-U-G-I-E, F O S T E R, one word, dot com, from which site you can jump into her blog, view her fiction index, and just generally bungle about in UG Fosterland. I first met Ms. Foster and Tonight's Story, the title of which I'll give you in a moment, in 2009, when I was asked to record the story for the venerable Escape Pod. Then, The tale was a hopeful for the Nebula Award. It won that one and went on to gather nominations for the 2010 Hugo, the 2010 World Science Fiction Association Small Press Award, and for the 2009 British Science Fiction Association Award for Best Short Story. It can be both a novelette and a short story, apparently. In any event, I loved... Recording this story. It, it's a dream for any reader, narrator, former actor, would be director at all. It's also a bit of a nightmare because it is a beautiful, subtle, terrifying story to live inside of even for a short time. So, call it science fiction or what you will, but tonight's tale will chill you to the bone. As I said, hang on to your identity because here is Eugene Foster's Sinner, Baker, Fabulist, Priest, Red Mask, Black Mask, Gentleman, Beast. Each morning is a decision. Should I put on the brown mask or the blue? Should I be a tradesman or an assassin today? Whatever the Queen demands, of course I am, but so often she ignores me, and I am left to figure out for myself who to be. Dozens upon dozens of faces to choose from. 1. Marigold is for murder. The yellow mask draws me, the one made from the pelt of a mute animal with neither fangs nor claws. Better for the workers to collect its skin. It can only glare at its keepers through the wires of its cage, and when the knives cut and the harvesters rip away its skin, no one is troubled by its screams. I tie the tawny ribbons under my chin. The mask is so light, almost weightless, but when I inhale... A charnel stench redolent of outhouses, open intestines, and dried blood floods my nose. My wife's mask is so pretty. Pink flower lips and magenta eyelashes that flutter like feathers when she talks. But her body, it's pasty and soft, the flesh of her thighs mottled with black veins and puckered fat. Still, I want her. Darling, I'm sorry, I say. They they didn't have the kind you wanted— I bought what they had, their citrus nectar, iolite bronze, and creamy illusion. "'Might as well bring me pus in a jar,' she snaps. "'Did you look on all the shelves?' N- "'No, but the shop girl said they were out. "'That slut was probably hoarding it for herself. "'You know they all skim the stuff, open the pots, scoop out a spoonful here, a dollop there. "'They use it themselves or stick it in tawdry urns to sell at those independent markets.' "'The shop girl looked honest enough. "'Her mask had been carved onyx with a brush of gold at the temples and chin.' She had been slim, her flesh taut where my wife sagged, her skin flawless, golden. And she had moved with a delicate grace, totally unlike the lumbering woman before me. Looked honest, my wife's eyes roll in the sockets of her mask, like you could tell Queen's honey from shit. My love, I I know you're disappointed, but won't you try one of these other ones for me? I pull out a jar of Iolite bronze from the sack and unscrew the lid. Although hostility bristles from her, her scent, her stance, the glare of fury from the eye-holes of her mask, I dip a finger into the solution. It's true, it doesn't have the same consistency, and the perfume is more musk than honey, but the tingle, it's the same. With my Iolite bronzed finger, I reach for the cleft between her doughy thighs. "'Don't touch me with that filth!' she snarls, backing away." If only she wasn't so stubborn. I grease all the fingers of my hand with iolite bronze. The musk scents rouse me faster than queen's honey. Get away! I grab for her sex, clutching at her with my slick fingers. I am so intent that I do not see the blade glowing in her fist, as my fingertips slip. Into her she plunges the weapon into my chest and I go down, lying in a pool of my own blood, the scent of Iolite bronze turning rank. I watch the blade rise and fall as she stabs me again and again. Her mask, her mask, her mask is so pretty. 2. Blue is for maidens. The next morning, I linger over my selection, touching one beautiful face, then another. There's a vacant spot where the yellow mask used to be, but I have many more. Finally, I choose one, the color of sapphires. The brow is sewn from satin, smooth as water. I twine the velveteen ribbons in my hair, and the tassels shush round my ears like whispered secrets. I don't think I'll ever marry, I say. Why should I? The girl beside me giggles, slender fingers over her mouth opening. Her mask is hewn from green wood hardened by three days of fire. Once carved and finished, the wood takes on a glass-like clarity, the tracery of sepia veins like a thick filigree of lace. Mark my words, she said. All the flirting you do will catch up to you one day. A man will steal your heart, and you'll come running to me to help with the wedding. I laugh, but it's not likely. The guys you know, they only think about... "'Queen's Honey getting me alone. "'I'd just as soon marry a mask-maker as any of those meatheads. "'Oh, that's twisted,' my girlfriend squeals and points. (laughs) "'Look, it's the new shipment. "'Didn't I tell you the delivery trucks "'come round this street first? "'We stand with our mask pressed against the shop window, "'ogling the display of vials. "'Exotica. "'White wishes under a black moon,' my friend, "'rattles off the names printed in elegant fonts "'in the space beneath each sampler.' "'Metallic Mischief, Homage to a Manifesto?' "'What do you suppose that one's like?' "'Terracotta Talisman and Dulcet Poison.' "'I like the sound of that last one. "'You would. "'Oh, gosh. "'Let's go try them. "'That store, it's awfully posh. "'Do you think they'll let us try without buying? "'Of course they will. "'We're customers, aren't we? "'They won't throw us out. "'Well, they might.' My concerns fail to dampen her enthusiasm, and I let her tow me through the crystalline doors. The mingled scents in the shop wash over us. My friend abandons me, rushing to join the jostling horde clustered around the new arrivals, while the mixture of emotive fumes makes my friend giddy and excited. They overwhelm me. I lean against a counter, and I take shallow breaths.
3: "'You look
2: lost.' The man's mask is matte pewter, the metal coating so thin I can see the strokes from the artisan's paintbrush. A flame design swirls across both cheeks in variegated shades of purple. I'm just waiting for my friend, I gesture in the direction of the mob. There's a glint of translucent green, it's all I can see of her. You're not interested in trying this new batch, then? Not really, I prefer the traditional distillations. I guess that... "'Makes me old-fashioned.' "'The man leans to conspiratorial closeness. "'But you purchased those three new ones yesterday. "'Tried to warn you about the Iolite bronze. "'It's not at all a proper substitute for Queen's honey. "'Memories of lust and violence fill me. Musk can arousal pain and blood. "'But they're wrong. "'I am someone else today. "'I shake my head. "'I don't know what you're talking about.' "'I search for a hint of green glass or sepia lace. "'Where is she?' I'd never let someone use eye bronze bronze. Me? <laughs> Didn't you say it was a gift when I sold it to you? What? I was the shop girl in the onyx mask. I I am shocked beyond words, beyond reaction. It is the biggest taboo in our society, so profane, so obscene, that it is not even in our law books. We do not discuss the events and encounters of our other masks. It is not done. What if people started blaming one face for what another did, merely because the same citizens wore both The moment of speechless paralysis ends, and I run. I fly through the glittering doors, not caring that I've left my best friend behind, and I run, 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 until I am back to the dormitory on center at corridor. I huddle in the lift, and it whisks me to my quarters on my bed. I sob, the tears wetting the inside of my mask. A part of me worries that I will stain the satin, but it it is a distant part. When the tears run out, I am done with the day, done with this mask. But the unmasking time is still far off. If I'd only worn the tan mask today with the bronze veneer and dripping beadwork, I wouldn't have fled from the pewter mask deviant. I'd have punched him in the golden flesh of his gut or hauled him to the Queen's gendarmes for a reckoning. Then I realize what I'm thinking, what I'm wanting. Another mask, but not during the morning selection, not during the unmasking, while I'm still wearing... TODAY'S, AND I'M AFRAID. 3. BLACK IS FOR SEX In the morning, as I stand barefaced among my masks, looking anywhere but at the tan one, I receive the Queen's summons. It is delivered, as always, by a gendarme masked in thinly hammered silver. He rings my bell, waiting for me to acknowledge him over the intercom. The gendarmes are the only citizens about during the early morning when the rest of us are selecting our daily masks, just as they are the only ones who patrol the thoroughfares after the unmasking hour, collecting retired masks, distributing new ones. Uh, Good morning, gendarme, I say. Good morning, citizen. You are called upon today to carry out your civic duty. Ah, I'm pleased to oblige. A square of paper slips through my delivery slot and into my summons tray, bringing with it an elusive sweetness. The queen's writs are always scented like the honey named after her, both more insistent and more subtle than the stuff which circulates in the marketplaces. Among my arrayed masks raised above the others is the sable mask, hammered steel, painted with liquid ebony. It is the consort mask, worn only to honor the queen's summons. The paint is sheer, and glimmers of silver flicker through the color. The eyes are outlined in opaque coal, a masked mask. I lock the delicate chains with her delicate clasps around my head, and for a moment I am disoriented by the lenses over the eyes. It takes longer for me to adjust the warp in my vision than to the feel and heft of the mask, but not much longer. The music trills liquid and rich around us, and I concentrate on the steps. In her mask, like stars, the queen swirls and glides across the ballroom in my arms. Caught in her beauty and my exertions, I have missed her words. I beg your pardon, my queen. What did you say? Her mask tilts up, and the piquant flavor of her amusement fills my senses. I asked if you were enjoying the dance, whether you liked the refreshment. "'I've not sampled the buffet, but it looks lavish. "'As to the dance, I'm worried that my clumsiness might offend you "'or that I might misstep. "'I've never danced with you before. "'That would explain your stiffness. "'I have not had the pleasure. "'I'm sorry. Don't be. "'It was only a whimsy. I don't dance with many. "'You probably won't dance with me again.' The queen gestures and the music stops. She leads me to her couch, crimson sheets and alabaster cushions. I'm more familiar with this type of dance, but she isn't ready for me yet. Her scent, though Hetty tells me it's not time to mate, although it will be soon. It confuses me, this waiting. Why am I here if not to do my duty? She reclines on her couch, but not in the position of copulation. "'Talk to me,' she says. "'What would you like to speak on, my queen?' "'Do you have a favorite mask?' "'It is an odd question. It treads the boundary of indecency. "'No, my queen,' I say. "'They are all precious to me. "'Don't you wish you could discard some masks?' perhaps the ones that you suffer in and just wear the ones that are pleasurable. Was she testing me? They are all precious to me, I say again, each in its wonderful variety. I would never presume to contravene the law, not even to bend it a little. There are some citizens who wear just a few masks, don others only as often as they must in order to stay out of the purview of the gendarmes, but (laughs) that's criminal. Technically, it's legal, although it defies
0: the heart of the code. Generally, the number of their... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
1: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Select rotation is large enough that no single mask becomes dominant. Do you find the prospect appealing? Dominant mask. What would be the purpose in limiting one's mask selection? Her words make no sense. No. My answer pleases her. Her scent rises, and with it my arousal, and I cannot think clearly any more. The Queen is the font of desire and satisfaction, the perfume of true Queen's honey between her legs, her need, mine. Nothing exists but the urgency of mating. It eclipses mere copulation as the sun now shines the stars. I submerge in a tide of desire and completion and the rise of desire again over and over until the unmasking hour. And in the morning, barefaced and aching, I report to the mask-makers' gallery. I avoid looking at their ugly, soft countenances. It's it's partly instinctive discomfort at being seen without a mask. But also, mask-makers have always made me uneasy. I feel sorry for them their faces so colorless and insipid. It's an irony that they wear such bland features and plain colors, yet they make such marvelous faces for us, each one unique in its brilliance. I pity them. And I'm glad I was not born to their cast. I hand over my summons written, except my newest mask, my favor from the Queen. It is glossy saffron with pointed wires to fasten it, It has no mouth-opening, but it does not seem lacking for that, like every face they craft. It is a feat of artistry. 4. Orange is for Agony I press the saffron mask to my face and wrap the barbed laces round my head. A fleeting touch, my fingertips on the painted metal, tell me of thick runnels that dent the surface. Their unevenness makes the fit uncomfortable for a moment wire mess pressures above and below. If I lie down, I can stretch my neck a little, but then the mesh cuts into my feet, my forearms, my chest. Standing, sitting, a few back-and-forth steps, but pacing only reminds me how small my cell is, and I do not like for us to pace. Exercise thins the fat between muscle and skin, making the harvest more difficult. My neighbor wears a ginger mask dotted with cobalt sequins. He urinates, and it splashes through the mesh onto me. I hiss my rage, crowded by the scent of his Body and return the favor. I'm glad when the workers come for him and watch as they trap him in their loops. He tries to fight, but he has nothing sharp or hard to wield. Their wicked tools, edged with blue light, open him from neck to groin. He barely has time to bleed before they carve perpendicular incisions, flaps to better flay him in a single piece. His eyes bulge as they tear away his skin, all the movement he is capable of. He's silent, for there is no mouth on his mask. He is as mute as I. When they've done, they leave him writhing in the liquids of his body on the white wire mesh floor. They take the heavy cloak of his skin with them. Then it's my turn. The ginger planes of my neighbor's mask swivel to me so he can watch. There's no place to run in my tiny cell, and their loops pinion me. When they begin to cut away my skin, it is the most terrible pain I've ever known. Their masks are lemon, daffodil, and butterscotch, pretty yellow like sunshine. 5. "'Jasper is for jilting. "'The next morning the choice is harder than usual. "'I flinch away from the saffron mask and stare for a long while at the tan one, "'but it feels inappropriate to select it. "'Like a whiff of passing corruption, the notion of going without a mask today, "'simply staying in my quarters and not choosing a face, flits through my thoughts.' It's too scandalous to contemplate. I feel guilty to have even considered it. Without looking, I reach among the rows of empty faces and snatch the first one my hand falls upon. It's a blackish-green, the color of stagnant water in a pool that never sees the sun. The chin and nose are gilded in dark velvet. The lips shine liquid, silver, hand-painted on silk. I tighten the woven cords round my head. I hover beneath the window of my lover, she of the cerulean mask, detailed in voile. She reclines on her balcony, and a song of courtship thrums from her dainty mouth. I inhale the delicate body sense her servant wafts out with a fan, enticement and temptation, innocence and promise. Do you love me? my sweetheart calls. With all my soul, you are my everything. I don't believe you, she laughs. How are you different from all the other men just waiting for a chance to slather me with Queen's honey? How can you say that? I've asked you to marry me. What does that prove? Any meathead with a tongue can do that. And anyway, I don't want to marry at all. Marriage is it's a sorry state that leads to fighting and grief. I pantomime in exaggerated dismay for her benefit. What can I do to convince you of my sincerity? Ask me for anything, and I'll give it to you. Do you have a jar of Queen's honey? I hesitate. If I answer truthfully, she might accuse me again of being a libertine. But it's also my courting gift. She will feel slighted if I don't have anything to offer her. I sigh, and I choose the better of my options. It's a humble present to honor your loveliness. Good. Good. When I'm not immediately rebuffed, I dare to hope. I'm sending my girl down. Give the queen's honey to her, and we'll all play a game. She'll seal the jar so the contents may not be used without breaking it, and puncture its lid, freeing the scent. If you can spend the afternoon with me and my girl in my enclosed boudoir and keep from breaking the jar open... I'll believe that you love me and not simply the pleasure of copulation, but if you lose control and do break the jar, you can slake yourself on her, but she will never get a word or whiff from me again. What pray do I get if I can restrain myself, I say? Her laughter is like a teasing wind. <laughs> if you can check your desires until evening, I'll send her away and break the jar myself. I'm both excited and dismayed at the prospect of her game. My lover will ensure that our time is not spent on chaste recreations or thoughtful conversation. She will pose herself and her servant girl in all manner of ways suggestive of copulation, and she will probably already be drenched in one of the trendy distillations, passion without doubt, or exotica, or... Citrus nectar to madden me further. Still, the reward will be sweet. And, at the very least, my love did not altogether peg me wrongly. I'll get to do the servant girl. My prospective consolation prize opens the door. Her mask is a sage green that suggests transparency. The eyes rimmed in toffee lace. She snatches the queen's honey from me, but there the anticipation ends. The script finishes. She twists off the lid and scoops the unguent out. Without embarrassment or coyness, she rubs it on herself between her thighs. As I stare, dumbfounded, she smeared a glistening coat on me. Instantly, I'm aroused, and I'm eager. Want me? She whispers. Yes. Flesh on flesh, the queen's honey. Brooks, no denial. Then catch me. She sprints away. I waver for only a breath. Above, my sweetheart calls down plaintively, wondering at our delay, but desire roars through me, and all I care about is the servant girl. I chase her through the dormitory block as she weaves around crowds and over obstacles, sculptures, shops, new constructions. Sometimes men turn, catching the fleeting perfume of Queen's Honey mingled with her sex as she darts by, and I am enthralled. She fills every breath I take. I run until I'm a creature of fire, blazing lungs, burning limbs. But it is space to my eagerness. I will catch her, and then we will copulate. She leads me past the market district, past shop windows, filled with citizens making purchases, and into the rural outskirts where the machines harvest our food and workers gather esoteric materials for the mask-makers' guild. In a shaded copse of green wood trees, she drops to her knees, and I am upon her, not even waiting for her to assume the proper position. She opens to me, and I rush to join our bodies. It is glorious, of course, the release all the more satisfying for the chase, but even as I spend myself I notice something, something wrong. The girl is not making the right movements, and her scent while intoxicating is is strange. Beneath the queen's honey, she's impatient when she should be impassioned as soon as i'm finished she pulls away and for the first time after copulation i'm not happy and languid awash in the endorphins of sex i feel awkward before i can say anything the girl tears off her mask the horror of her unmasking paralyzes me I'm unprepared for her next action. She lunges, ripping off the bindings on my mask, yanks it free. I'm barefaced. It's not the unmasking hour, not the time for emptiness and slumber. Without my mask, I, I don't know how to act or feel or what to say. I don't even know if I can speak, for I never have without a mask. I'm lost. No one. The nucleus of my personality, the intelligence, it, its is empty. The girl has stolen it. 6. White is for obedience. While I kneel, stupefied, the girl discards my mask, letting it fall among the long grasses where we loved. I don't even have the presence or, or, or of, of will to retrieve it. She examines the inside of her mask with infinite care. She peels a sheer membrane away. It is like a veil of gauze or chiffon, but this veil has a shape. There are nose, cheekbones, and chin. It is a mask, but a mask unlike any I've seen. The fabric is unornamented and diaphanous white like thin fog or still water, but all colorless. It doesn't conceal what it covers, only overlays it. She takes this ghost of a mask and drapes it over my face. "'Without cord or chain, it fastens itself, clinging to my head. "'It is such a relief to have my nakedness covered. "'I'm grateful when I should be outraged. "'And I wait for the mask to tell me who I am and what to do. "'And I wait. "'There's not much oversoul there,' the girl says. "'Without a mask her features are too animated, obscenely so. "'I avert my gaze, wondering if the ghost mask exposes my expressions in such an indecent fashion.' It's only a scaffold to help you get past the schizopanic, she continues. doesn't have any personas or relationship scenarios to instill. Absolutely no emotives. I I don't like the ghost mask's vacancy, but, but at least I can think now, and it occurs to me to scramble for my own mask. Stop, she says. I cannot move. I cannot move. My fingertips brush the darker green and glint of silver lying in the grass, but I can't pick it up. I'm afraid the scaffold does have an obedience imprint. I'm sorry about that, but it's necessary. You wouldn't be able to access the oversoul in your mask anyway. The scaffold, it creates a barrier the mask imprints can't penetrate, and you won't be able to take the scaffold off. Go ahead, I know you want to. Try. Try to remove it. I grope my face, my head, looking for something to undo there's nothing to unknot, release, or unbuckle. I find the edge where the ghost mask the scaffold gives way to the skin, but it's adhered to me. The memory from yesterday, the saffron mask, being skinned alive is enough to deter me from anything drastic. What did you do to me? I asked. Why? Good. You're questioning. I knew you'd acclimate quickly. A scent penetrates my distress. She is pleased. Except the tang isn't right. It's not feminine, but not masculine either. She has no mask to tell me whether she's male or female. Should I continue thinking of her as a girl? And for that matter, the scaffold hasn't provided me with a gender either. Am I a man or a woman or am I a neuter, perhaps some sort of androgene? I feel lightheaded and ill. If this is some perverted game, I say, I- I'm not amused. I'll report this to the gendarmes. They'll confiscate all your masks for this crime, and I, I trail off. Her naked face is testimony of her indifference to the severest penalty of our society. Why are you doing this to me? I whimper. Did you ever wonder who you are? Beneath your masks, she says. When you say me, who is that? Hearing her voicing the question, that has lately made my morning so troubling in the hours after unmasking so long. It's it's a kind of deliverance. I'm not the only citizen to have these thoughts. I'm not alone in my distress, but the guilt remains along with added unease. Is, is, Is exposing my crime what this is all about? Am I to be penalized? Look, don't be afraid, she says. I'm not going to turn you over to the gendarmes or anything like that. My breathing quickens. Are you hearing my thoughts? No. I'm only watching your face, my my face. It conveys emotions. It's it's like smelling another's confusion, or knowing that someone's angry by the tightness of their shoulders. Only with facial musculature. Before long, you'll read it as instinctively as you do scents and stances. You say that as though as though you expect me to be pleased. Her mouth curves and parts, revealing the whiteness of her teeth. Being witness to such an intimate view is both repulsive and, and it's fascinating. I know you don't think so now, she says, but I've given you a gift. One very few people receive, she stands. Walk with me. I don't want to go anywhere with her, but the scaffold compels me to obey. We stroll deeper into the wilderness, leaving my mask in the grass. It is an uncomfortable sensation having my will "'at odds with my body. "'I've been watching you for a while to make sure you were right,' she says. "'Watching me.' "'Fragments of confusion knit into understanding. "'You're the shop girl who sold me the highlight bronze, "'and the deviant man with the pewter mask, "'and the customer at the bakery who bought a dozen egg tarts from you before that, "'the woman with the pink mask who asked for the recipe? "'Yes.' And before, when you wore your roan and iron mask, I was in the audience when you presented your new poem. And the day before that, I picked indigo with you for the mask-makers. We emerge into a clearing A broken-down hut lists, obscured by overgrown foliage. Her sage and toffee mask still dangles from her fingertips. She passes its brim over the doorknob, and the door swings open. I'm glad finally to meet you, she says. You can call me Pina. The interior is dim, slit by stray sunbeams poking through holes in the ramshackle walls. Pina. The, the word is meaningless. Why? It's my name. A word that means me, regardless of what mask I'm wearing or not wearing. I, I snort. Why stop at each citizen having their own name? Why not each tile or brick the builders use or every tree or blade of grass? Every street has a name, Pina says, and every shop. So we can tell one from the other. Otherwise, we couldn't say where a place was or differentiate between one food market and the other. Exactly! She runs her fingers over a floorboard, and I hear a click. In the far corner by the fireplace, flagstones part to expose steps. What's down there, I ask? Answers. Come. We descend, and the flagstones rumble shut overhead. Ambient light washes over us, dim and red, casting bloody shadows. We're in a tunnel with rough stone walls. The light extends ten paces before us. Beyond is darkness. Pina, Strides toward this border, and I am obliged to accompany her. When we are within a pace of light's end, more red comes on to reveal another span of corridor, and when we are within this new radius, the light behind us goes out. And so we walk why do citizens need names? I ask? We change masks every day, unlike shops and streets which stay the same. What- What if I discover that my physician is the same citizen as my murderer or, or a citizen in one mask as my lover and in another my enemy? If I call that citizen by a single word, it's like treating all their mask identities as the same person. Well, that is the point. she says it lets us be who we truly are underneath our masks. I shake my head. Without the masks we were not anything. Uh, there was a time before the masks. And we were empty, primitive creatures, without will or without purpose, until the first queen created the first mask to wear and carve faces for the citizens. And and she designated the guild of mask-makers and tasked them with their sacred duty so that everyone would be imbued with the souls of blah, 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 blah. No, the lies— Her heresy is both disturbing and it's intriguing. What do you believe, then? That is what I'm going to show you. Why me? There's a group of us named. We seek out others who harbor the same doubts and resentments we do, and we liberate them. I don't want to be liberated. Don't you? Haven't you wanted to be free of the daily selection routine or chafed against the mask, wishing the hour of unmasking came sooner. Don't you hover in indecision some mornings not because the choosing is so hard, but because none of them appeal. Don't you wonder who you could be if you were left to decide for yourself? I am saved from having to answer by the appearance of something new when the next light activates. A door. Seven. Red is for revelation. Where are we? We're beneath the palace at the Mask-Makers Guild. She passes her mask over the door like the huts it opens. I balk. No, no, absolutely not. It's prohibited. She studies me. I can make you, but I won't. It's your decision. I open my mouth to repeat myself, but first, listen, hear me out. If I must. But it won't change my mind. You know, I've been keeping by you as you switched masks. I was also with you when you wore the saffron mask at the leather harvesters. The memory is still raw. So? Do you know who I was? One of the Skinners, I presume. I was your neighbor in the adjoining cage. Despite everything, I'm dismayed. Didn't you know what they were going to do to you, to us? I knew. And still you let them, willingly even. Why, in the name of the first queen, because to be with you, I could either hurt you or be hurt. And I chose not to hurt you. Am I someone to you? Have we been lovers or spouses or friends, not that I know of? Then why— Because I know who I am, and my actions are a reflection of me. I don't skin people alive. Her last sentence carries a conviction, a certainty that makes me envious. What would you do if you had to choose, she says, if your decisions extended beyond what mask to wear any given day? Would you willingly inflict such suffering upon another? I I would. I... I... I don't know. Do you want to know? And I find... I do... The door opens upon a storage room jammed with row, upon row of shelves. Bolts of multi-hued fabric, rolls of ribbon and lace, and jars of washes, dyes, and lacquers are piled together without any semblance of order. More rolls of textile spill out of cubby holes and closets lining the rooms. This is their overflow storage, where they keep their excess, pinuses. We raid it for our mask-making supplies. Named artisans can create near-perfect replicas of guild masks— Uh, But without the oversoles, of course. With added features that can unlock doors. She displays her teeth again. Some part of me has learned to equate that facial configuration with positive emotion, even before I breathe the perfume of her approval. You noticed? Very good. How how do they do it? She leads me through the jumble. It's complicated to explain. All of our mask functions, including the scaffold you're wearing— are based on the mask-maker's constructs. There's bits and pieces, appliqued, sewn, glued, or embedded in all masks, which stimulate thoughts, trigger emotions, assign personality traits, and so on. Named artisans have taken apart and put back together these pieces, realigning and modifying them until they've gained an understanding of their workings in the process. They've discovered that the components can do more than imprint oversoles, like lock and unlock doors. And there's still so much we haven't figured out yet. The supply room exits them on a dark corridor that illuminates red at our approach, but unlike the one from the hut, the circle of light shows a cluster of turnings that forks in different directions. You make it sound like you, named, have been at this for a while, I say. We have... She sets off down one of the twisting tunnels. Sometimes the gendarmes get wind of our activities, so we work exclusively in pairs, one mentor, one recruit. That way the most named any of us know is two, your mentor when you're recruited and your recruit once you're ready to bring someone in. We disseminate information and requests through codes, drop-off points. It's slow, but it's safer. I've lost track of the bends and turns we've taken. You must recruit pretty selectively if each mentor can only only take one. Mentors can take another recruit if theirs is apprehended by the gendarmes. The lighting casts deep shadows over the planes of her face, and for a moment it seems that she's wearing a crimson mask. She brushes her fingers over her eyes. They come away wet. What happens when the gendarmes catch you? They kill us. I shrank. Sure, that's all? So you lose the day in the, in the morning? No. They kill us. It's not like the pretty murders citizens inflict upon each other. There's no waking up from the death the gendarmes deliver. I stumbled, shocked. Uh, that's, that's monstrous. How is that possible? How can our laws permit it? You said it yourself. Without the masks, we're nothing. When the gendarmes execute one of us, they reassign all of that name's personas to the population at large. The oversouls continue, and there's no disruption among the citizenry. I think the gendarmes grieve more when they have to destroy a mask that has been murdered than when they kill one of us. Pina rounds a corner. And there is a wall. It's creamy smooth as though stone workers spent hours painstakingly sanding into perfect flatness. Did you make a wrong turn? I ask. <laughs> Afraid of getting lost? Her tone is teasing. Don't worry. Even if I had made a wrong turn, my mask contains the labyrinth's secrets, but I didn't. I half expect her to wave the mask at the wall and a door to miraculously appear. She doesn't. Instead, Pena lifts her hand to her mouth and tears at it with her teeth. Dark blood oozes, and she smears this droplet on the wall. Soundlessly, the wall glides up and disappears into the ceiling. White, not red, light comes on, blinding after the dimness. Peña tugs me forward while I'm still blinking. I squint, eyes tearing and blurry at the, at the small room we have entered. The walls are polished metal, and they encircle us, curving outwards, so it feels like we're inside a cylinder, a closed one. And while my eyes adjust, the door shuts itself. In the room's center is an ornate chair of silver and gold. Resting upon its seat is a mask. I recognize it, for it is the stuff of legend, carved from a single diamond with a million, million facets, each representing a mask to be the first queen's mask, the one she created with her own hands to bring enlightenment to us all. 8. Diamonds are for death. Peña touches my face, and the scaffold slips away. The anxiety of being barefaced is forgotten in the wonder of the first mask. The truth, your answers, they're all in the oversoul of that mask, she says. All you have to do, put it on. What if I don't? Then we go back, and tomorrow morning you choose a mask to wear like every other morning, and you never see me again. I might turn you over to the gendarmes. "'Her lips parted and flashed teeth. "'What will you tell them, that a citizen kidnapped you and filled your head with truth? "'How will you find me, and how do you know the gendarmes won't kill you simply for knowing that much?' "'She's right, of course. "'But I, I don't have to put on the first mask. "'What you do is up to you, now and forever.' I hesitate for a heartbeat before striding to the chair and seizing the first mask. It's so light. I'd expected it to be heavier. Holding it aloft, I realize the eye holes are encased in nearly transparent lenses, like my consort mask, except diamond instead of glass. You might want to sit before you put it on, Pena says. I didn't. Ended flat on my back. I perch on the gold and silver chair and set the mask over my face. There are segmented strands of diamond to wrap round my head that fasten with glittering diamond locks. The lenses warp my vision, disorienting me, but, but only for a moment. Crowing exultation, the war is finished! My last rival and her progeny are dead, and I reign in exclusive sovereignty. My children, I am so proud of you. This is the dawn of a new age, a glorious and splendid age!' My scientists have conquered our only remaining enemy, time. They have found the key to unlocking the shackles of age and injury and conquered the last disease. I am no longer chained by the dictates of perpetual reproduction. The years of my empire will be like a magnificent river, rippling past aeon after aeon, powerful and endless." I do worry, however, that my soldiers will decline. They are the simplest of my children and only understand rigid procedures and physical contests. Perhaps I should manufacture a new corps of soldiers, an elite one. They can vie with each other in mock battles for the honor of being counted among my gendarmes. The river of years is murky and deep, and I cannot see where it will take us. I am stymied at an unanticipated quarter, my consorts, the noblest of my children, nearly my equals, clever, curious, independent, imaginative. I should have known they would feel neglected and adrift when I ceased summoning them to mate. They are creatures of great passion, as I am, and now they squabble, forming factions and carry out vendettas. I've started opening my body to them again, but I will ask the scientists to develop a synthetic pheromone so they may copulate amongst themselves. I am despair. A citizen killed another today, beyond what my scientists were able to restore. I must accept the truth. We are an aggressive people, not destined for peace, and all I have tried to build is in ruins. If only... There was a way for my consorts to spend their passions harmlessly. I must confer with my scientists. At last I have devised an end to the chaos which blights my citizenry.' My scientists have developed a means of imprinting memories and eliciting emotions that may be interchanged, swapped out, added upon with seemingly infinite variety. My consorts may oppose each other and mate with promiscuity all without garnering rivals or blood feuds. I have set my scientists to generate these oversoul masks in copious quantity and in wondrous variety. This must work. All is well. The activities of my children are once more in accord with my desiring, and Eternity's River holds no more uncertainties. There was a minor dilemma, but I have solved even that. It seems that I am not immune to the effect of the masks. I thought my royal will would safeguard my identity, but it is becoming a strain sorting reality from fabrication I have had an oversoul commissioned. It will be a lasting record of all the tribulations I have confronted and my efforts to remedy them. This mask shall be sealed beneath my palace in a chamber, secured by steel, and my blood shall be the only key that unlocks it. And I take off the mask of diamonds. Peña watches me, her lips parted. I tumble out of the chair and fall to my knees. "'I am your servant, first queen.' "'Pena's eyes widen, and she laughs. Oh, no, 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 she's at my side, and she hauls me up. "'I'm not the first queen, but your blood, it opened the door. "'Don't you get it? "'We're all of her blood, each of us descended from the first queen. "'It's some joke on her, huh?' "'I stay silent. "'Come,' she says. "'We need to get back before the hour of unmasking.' If we're seen on the streets after, the gendarmes will take us. I straggle after. I- I'm lost. I'm lost in my thoughts. I don't try to keep track of the red-lit corridors, and I notice only when we are among the fabrics and dyes of the storage room. Psst. Pena gestures. What is it? Without warning, she shoves me, and I tumble into a closeted hole. Bolts of velvet and felt tumble upon me. She flings an oversized bottle of jasmine oil after, engulfing me in cloying sweetness. And then then there's confusion. The red light extinguishes, and white beams flash in the darkness. They catch and glint off white metal, glittering eyes, gleaming brows— It's the silver masks of the gendarmes. Hidden in my cubby, my scent as obscured as my body, they do not detect me. They converge on a single spot. Pena, huddled beneath shelves. By order of the queen, you are hereby accused and convicted of treason, one gendarme says. I cannot smell anything over the sickening jasmine, but I can see the terror on her face. She glances at me, and there is a beseeching in her eyes and a question, but she looks away before I can understand it. The penalty for treason is death, citizen. A gendarme, perhaps the same one, says, Do you wish to repent? Identify your co-conspirators, and we will allow you to return to the way of the mask. Peña lifts her head. Never. They don't ask again. They activate their loops, and I'm reminded of the day of the saffron mask. I'm ashamed of the gladness I felt then. They don't skin her, but but this is as gruesome if swifter. A gendarme kneels over her, and she is pinioned on her back by bands of blue. Bracing himself, he staves in her face with his fist. I want to look away. It is an obscene violation, a perverse defilement, a damage to a citizen there to do any violence which might cause harm to a mask, but Pena isn't wearing a mask, and I don't look away. "'he strikes again and again "'until there is nothing left of the front of her head "'but a wreckage of bone and pulped wetness. 9. The Last Mask The gendarmes are as efficient in disposing of Peña's body "'as they were in dispatching her.' And when they have gone, the red light comes on and I dare to creep out. As I untangle myself from a length of burgundy velvet, my hand falls upon an unmistakable shape, Peña's green and toffee mask. The sight of it so soon after the atrocity of her execution unhinges me, and I start crying. I cannot stop. But it doesn't matter, because her mask will hide my tears. Somehow I make it to center at Corridor in the familiar confines of my quarters. I am safe, but I am not safe. I cannot forget the first queen's memories which the gendarmes would surely kill me for having, and more. I cannot erase the beseeching question in Pina's eyes. I tear off her mask. It's... Not the unmasking hour, but I don't care. I'm I'm weary of masks, even a blameless one without an oversoul. Pinya's death burdens me with shame and guilt, like being flayed again, but with the pain inside. I, I am surrounded by masks. Each is a player in some fabricated theater. Artist, victim, rake, entrepreneur, lover, spouse, friend. None of them's real. But I can put them on and escape these feelings, but I won't. One after the other, I destroy my masks. The ones that shatter are the easiest. I hurl them at the floor. The shards spill across the tile. The ones that burn, I commit to fire. But the metal ones I must work at, smashing one upon another until they're twisted out of all recognition. I save the sable mask for last out of a sense of propriety. Although it is metal, it is oddly malleable, and it crumbles between my hands. The lenses fall out of the eye-holes, and they tumble among the broken bits of ceramic and glass on my floor. I stand against the debris that was my life, and I don the only mask I spared, Pena's green and toffee one. My lover glances at me in her cerulean with wild mask, and lets me in. She thinks I am her servant girl. Where did you go? she demands. Do you know how long I've been waiting for you? (laughs) And where is my suitor? Her quarters are much like mine, much like every citizen's. has a mask room, a kitchen, and a bedchamber. I brush past her, and she follows, continuing to scold as we enter her kitchen. I find what I need in one of the drawers, a tenderizer mallet. It's heavy and solid. Even when I turn with it upraised, she doesn't relent. "'Are you ignoring me, you slut?' she shouts. "'How dare you!' Only when I yank off her masks does she become afraid. By then, of course, it's too late." I smash the mallet into her face. She stumbles, and I ride her as she goes down, hammering the metal tool into her face. It's over and over. Bones and flesh mashed together into pulp, and still I persist. I must be thorough. Pena did not have time to teach me the secrets of her league of named... But through her I've learned enough. I have seen how the gendarmes kill. I do not have their loops or their strength, but I know how to murder so that my victims will not wake. Pena also taught me to know who I am. I am chaos in this ordered society. I am the flaw in a carefully wrought plan. I am turbulence in the Queen's Eternal River. Thank you for letting us read this here in the Nook, Yuji. As mentioned, I first read this story back in 2009. At my first skim through, I was somewhat baffled. But the story reveals itself wonderfully as you go. Yes, you never know the whole of it. You never know who, where, or when you are. But the essential humanity of the tale becomes readily apparent. Obviously, this is a story that bears rehearing and rereading. And if you are interested in doing such a thing, Sinner, Baker, Fabulous Priest is now available on Amazon Kindle as a standalone novelette for one cent less than a dollar, 99 cents. So here we have a story highly lauded in science fiction circles, as is well-deserved. But I think you'll agree that it also earns high marks as a horror tale not because it features blood, torment, and creepy murder, but because it posits a world in which we always know exactly who we are. We know it by the putting on of our mask of the moment. You remember that the next time you slip into your suit and knot your tie for the day. Remember that the next time you grunt and sweat under the weary life, bear the oppressor's wrong— the proud man's contumely. Remember it when you shed that suit and tie and slip into a T-shirt and baseball cap. This is not just a story of a distant future, of bug beings and of hive minds. Now, apart from being a very rich and sensual tale of the strange, this is a very human tale of life as it is lived. Despite its strangeness, we recognize this place, these people, That's one reason why the story so resonates with us. You might want to pick it up. Amazon Kindle, 99 cents. Thanks again, UG. And that, children of the night, will be that. I would have you be upstanding and homeward bound. The worst of the summer is over, Yes. A few more days of discomforting heat and mug, but it's it's all but done. Now we have the fall to look forward to, to harvest smoke, scudding moon clouds, and, and, well, you know, apples, cinnamon, et al. And as you wind your way among the shadows tonight, take a look, not at the streets, not at the darkness, outside. Take a look inside, Try to have a peek at who you are, at that essential kernel that lives inside you, without which you would be, well, someone entirely different. That should prompt some truly pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wondersness.
0: For full, important safety information,
2: visit Juvederm.com. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.